0: on the wing monday through friday 11 a.m to 2 p.m where you will hear the latest releases in folk rock world jazz and much more only on community radio weru fm 89.9 blue hill and streaming worldwide at weru.org
1: Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at Mainboats.com. It's 9.58 and you are
0: tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next.
1: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webenaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a special guest, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today, and welcome Chief Francis.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Donna, and... Uh always a privilege to be on the show, and I think going on a half a dozen times or so now, so it's, it's always excellent to be here.
1: Oh, great. Uh, today, I, I thought we might do something a little bit different when we start out. Um, we have, uh, this is an election year, and uh, people ask me, you know, do you, does the, the tribes have the same election processes as, as the, the general public? and are there parties and you know how does that work so I'm just going to leave that give that to you to explain that process for people
0: excellent um, yep yeah, as you mentioned we are moving into uh, a very heated political season um, nationally uh, statewide and of course tribally as well um, tribal elections are and I tell people this a lot you know it's um, there are no differences really in terms of um, the passion around political elections. There's no differences around um, people's enthusiasm for elections and, and certainly choosing leaders in, in, in a tribal culture is an extremely um, important process. Uh, we do not have political um, parties. Um, and as you know, um, we went from a hereditary leadership type, uh, system in the mid 1800s to a, um, what is an electoral system now. Um, so as we move into the, um, this season, we have six, um, council seats that are up for, um, reelection and out of the 12 sitting council members. And also, um, our tribal representative position is up as well, as well as various other, uh, boards, uh, school board, um, Uh, census committee and and a a few others so so the political season is always um always challenging in the sense that uh, it brings with it some politics but um we we always i'm always amazed at how people um get engaged in that and you know they have their views and they feel very passionate about their community about their tribe and so um so participating in that can be grueling, but it is also very enlightening in a lot of ways.
1: So, is there uh, these candidates? Do they um, go door to door? How do they get their message to the to the tri- other tribal members?
0: Mm-hmm. And um, that that that's critical, really, in the tribal culture. I think um, in my time running for chief, um, now three times I've run for chief, and so I think. Uh, you know to back up our process you know you have to get nominated accept those nominations um, we have about a six month um, political season uh, give or take some days but um so it's it's condensed but it's um it's very uh again very passionate and what usually happens is you um, you get the nomination you you accept that and then you start to get your platform out there to people and and the most effective way to do that, and one of the luxuries we have in, in the tribal arena is is that um, we have access to our constituents and we can um, spend that time door-to-door and, and really talk to folks. Um, sometimes you don't hear what you want to hear, um, and other times um, you get very well supported, but I think at the same time, um, even in those situations where... Um, where people have concerns, I think that's important to to still go through that process and still um, sit through those um, conversations and and get an understanding of how you can be better or uh, how the government can um, pay more attention to certain areas. So, yeah, a lot of time gets spent one-on-one with individuals. And then there's, you know, the direct mail and the um, phone calls and all the things that take place as well.
1: Do you see the, uh, the internet being used more often this year than it has in the past?
0: I do. I, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of Facebook, for example, <laughs> and I don't know if I can say that on, on the radio, but, uh, <laughs> but I think it's, um, it, it's challenging, you know, it's a new thing and it's, it's basically when I was first elected in 2006, it was basically non-existent in the campaign, um. In 2008, it started to, candidates putting up websites, um, you know, going to the social um, networks to um, get their message out, and um, so yes, it's really become a um, kind of a centerpiece for how people get their message out and get that out to as many people as they can. So um, so many times, um, you, it, it's not uncommon now to see technology being used, even in the the tribal elections to um, to um, to run for office.
1: I'm hmm. I, I just kind of wondering what sort of effect that's going to have uh, in this election and and down the road if they're going to be using that, uh, you know, more and more every every year. You know, mm-hmm. if it's going to be effective.
0: Well, I think it um, it if used properly, if it's um, for instance in 2010 i spent a lot of time just on my website um putting up messages and not really getting um involved too much in um kind of back and forth debates more what i stood for what our history was in the office and um continuously updating that and and getting that message out that we wanted to get out i think where it can get um it can get a little bit um negative is that you you know, tribal cultures are extremely private, as you know, and um, our kind of day-to-day business internally um, has always been very guarded for, for many reasons. So I think, you know, no matter whether you're a company, whether you're an individual, whether you're a, a town or a state, I think you always run the risk of the message getting outside your constituency. and and um, And then you have people participating in your process that that really, um, shouldn't be. So I think, um, and, and it also run, you run the risk of, um, social networking, your message of, um, of really not being able to, and I don't want to use the word control, but not be able to, um, keep things factual. I think sometimes that, um, you know, just firing comments back and forth on a, um, on a social network page or whatever it is, um, can create a situation where the message gets lost and the um, the facts get distorted and you end up um, with this kind of perpetual debate on on um, trying to defend your position on something, especially against um, no threshold for um, reality sometimes. So I think it's challenging in many ways, but it's super, super effective as well.
1: It's sort of like a microchasm of the national uh, politics. <laughs> right. <laughs> What happens in that in that venue uh now we also have something a little bit different, I think, maybe even a lot different it's our uh our installation mm-hmm. ceremony um i don't i tried to i i couldn't find my my oath mm-hmm. I was looking for it i I think I filed it way away someplace uh but I was trying to find that because uh, that's part of the uh, the inter what do you call it, um, uh, induction ceremony.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm wondering if you might explain a little bit about that ceremony.
0: Sure. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, a unique tribal tradition is to, again, be inducted formally, uh, through a, an inauguration, we call it, but it's really an induction ceremony of the chief traditionally and, um, has many aspects to it. And I remember in 2006, um, when I started to plan for my first, my first one, um, as we were planning it, I never really, um, understood, I guess, the, uh, the significance of, of what everything meant in that until I really started to, um, I've, I've seen a lot of chiefs go through it and I've been at a lot of inaugurations, but when you're standing up there and saying those words, um, it's extraordinarily, um, moving. And I think that, um, Keeping my emotions in check that first time was extremely hard. I um, I had people, uh, tribal elders uh, up there swearing me, and I had you know former chiefs at the at the at, at the uh, table. We had a lot of um, like yourself uh, leaders at the time and, and former leaders that were um, were there that are no longer with us today. So I look back at that time and I'm extremely honored for go- going through that. But in short, the ceremony really is about your commitment to people and to the nation. And so we we talk a lot about um, in the ceremony about how you're bound to people you, through the you know the cuffs and collars. You you put the cuffs on you you which are beaded around your wrist, and you have um, um, a, a symbolic and and kind of a real, um, commitment to, um, being bound to people and the people you represent. And, and then you go through your, um, as you're going through the induction, uh, a person will be reading the explanation of the collar and you'll put that collar on representing, carrying the burden of people and, and the burden of your nation. And so, um, and in the reality of how serious that is really starts to set in, I think for somebody that is going through that for the first time. And, and of course our headdress, which is, um, very unique. You know, a lot of people, um, when you mention the word headdress, think of these Western war bonnets and, you know, our traditional headdresses go straight up. And that is our, um, our link to former chiefs, former leaders and our ancestors. And, and, um, so it, it really, when we go through that whole process at the end of it, it's extremely emotionally draining, and it's um, and it's a commitment that um, really changed my life. I remember um, the person that, um, you know, I always felt like I was a good leader. I was on the tribal council for several terms, and I I just remember after taking that oath and sitting in that chair that first day in office, it was like, you know, It was just overwhelming and it was um and it was something i felt like you know you put so much effort into getting the position and then to go through those ceremonies and listen to elders and and listen to people talk about our history and and what you're part of and you know your links to people like madaka wandu and chief joseph orno and um on and on and on and and it's just uh, just an honor and a privilege so after you win the position you kind of sit there and go well now i got to do it right so it's um it's daunting and and it's very demanding as you know being in government yourself and it's um and it's something that i've uh, thoroughly enjoyed the challenges are many and you you know you make decisions on a daily basis to in the best interest of of people and and hopefully People's lives get improved from it, you know governments make mistakes and we've we've made our share but we um we do the best we can to come from that place so I think that that ceremony really gets you prepared for that mindset moving forward
1: yeah I think that the ceremony um has i would say changed a lot since i don't know way back when mm-hmm. six uh since fifteen sixteen seventeen hundreds and it's uh probably become more uh modernized mm-hmm. uh which really there's not there's nothing wrong with that it, it uh in i was re- just reading a a, a piece on uh, from 1817 i think where you know the the saint john chiefs were invited and in the passamaquoddy and the Maliseet, um and and the uh the micmac and uh, it, there was a, pe- a, a, a portion of that where they're all inside but the people the ones that are outside sort of with with their rifles and uh, at the ready or whatever those were the Passamaquoddy's outside and they would like raise the flag and lower it uh, for each official that, uh, that was uh, recognized and elected mm-hmm. I, I found that very fascinating um, and they would sing to each other you know uh, do some sort of, but it was in, in you know, specific language. It wasn't translated, so we, since I don't have the language expertise, I couldn't have translated it anyway. But uh, the article that was written about it, uh, they were not able to translate. But they did say that there was singing. There's a lot of singing. You know, I was <laughs> in researching things. I, I find that uh, we did that. We even when we went to the. Uh, to visit the Passamaquoddy communities, we would sing from the canoe, and they would sing back. Mm. I mean, it's almost like a like a musical play.
0: Yeah, sing. you know, singing is such an important part of tribal culture, I think, um, not just historically, but today as well. You know, um, I think it was always meant as a, in my observation anyway, meant to be a more powerful way to express... Um, either a prayer or a um, or a greeting or um, just respect for um, who was being honored or what the situation was. So I I, um, I believe in, in, in the ceremony itself. I'm sure has I, I know has changed quite a bit over over time. For example, some chiefs that have been indoctrinated um, have really um, put emphasis on. The relationship with the church. Um, you know, others have put, um, emphasis on our relationship with the French, uh, or whatever that may be that the times, um, uh, warranted, but, but I think overall the meaning and the, um, and the overall, um, symbolism of, of everything that takes place is still very much there. I think that the, uh, but I, I do think that how we approach those inaugurations and those um, induction ceremonies are, are varies a little bit candidate to candidate. But it um, is pretty much a template that everybody follows.
1: Yeah, and I uh, <coughs> I've been to a few, and uh, you always feel the closeness of the ancestors when you when you're in this ceremony. It's it's uh, pretty amazing, pretty powerful, I think.
0: I always feel like at those inaugurations that the uh that's the one time when everybody is just um putting all the issues aside it's really about the community it's about a day of celebration um you know it's not just the chief that's getting inducted there are council members uh, representatives and um it's just a uh, a very neat time for the community to be able to um kind of get this fresh start with new leadership and i always found it even not running for this position i always found it to be really exciting as a tribal citizen you know i always felt like you know we hear a lot about one vote you know it means a lot you know your vote counts and um, nationally i don't know you know (laughs) um but tribally it definitely does and um and i think that uh you know, and that's why these campaigns get worked so hard i mean i've seen candidates win by five or six votes sometimes so yeah, or four right <laughs> <laughs> so huge landslides yeah uh,
1: so um how long have you been chief now
0: i'm in going in my sixth year um, this term runs through two thousand and fourteen it's my third term
1: third term wow that's a record isn't it Mr.
0: it's it's close i I guess uh, by all accounts the uh um, longest serving modern day chief was uh, for ten years, and that was um, A.J. Nicola.
1: And so, how long ago was that?
0: Um, I'm guessing A.J. must have been in the late 40s, 50s, in that range.
1: Yeah, I'm sure James Francis could tell us. Oh,
0: absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, when you when you were elected. Back in two thousand and six, um, what were some of the some of the goals you had back
0: then? Well, I always felt, and um, you know I grew up in a household with politics all around me. My father was on the council for a long time um, and so i uh, I knew I was immediately interested in that aspect of tribal government and I also grew up in a very a house very dedicated to um, providing and, and business development, and you know my father owned a small business, uh, very successful small business for a lot of years, and um, so I always felt like when I looked at his success, um, ninth grade education, never knew who his father was. Um, when I looked at his success. And then I looked at how economically challenged the tribes for multiple reasons. It wasn't because of um, lack of talent, that's for sure. But as you know, in, in this business, you you get an understanding of just how far left behind tribes were for decades, and um, educationally and economically, and in some cases, very purposely. So... Um, as I looked around at that situation, um, I really wanted to do something about that. I wanted people to have opportunity, and really felt like, um, really felt like, with economic success, we could really take care of all the things that were important to us. You know, how we protect the river, how we grow our cultural programs, how we revitalize language, um, how we develop the community, how we do everything we do rather than relying totally on, uh, restricted federal funds that basically set that agenda for you. So, um, so I really felt like, um, uh, we needed to make a change economically. And I knew that was going to be difficult because, um, there's a lot of historical trauma in native communities. There's a lot of historical mistrust in, in native communities and for, for very sound reasons. But I think that, um, so we had to overcome just re- gaining trust of of the community in terms of uh, the tribe, in terms of this is what we want to do and this is about the tribe, not about any individuals. And, uh, and we're going to try to make sure that everybody who needs a job has access to a job, and uh, we're going to try to um, uplift people economically so they could focus on... Um, those tribal things that are extremely important so it's hard to to take a family and say you know historically your people were medicine people you we need you to focus on that we need you to bring that stuff back when they're struggling every day to feed their family so it it becomes less and less of a priority and I think that um, so that was my goal I felt like um, through that Economic platform that we could really get at the things that mean the most to us as tribal people.
1: The the, the thing too is you know when you when you come along and you you focus and your goal is uh, an economic goal, mm-hmm. then you face members of the community who want to focus on uh, the traditional cultural mm-hmm. aspects, and so that in itself is controversial.
0: Very, and so you know when I ran the first time, I, I while. Well, both times that I've run against um, a candidate, my opponent was extremely culturally focused. He had, um, that was it. He just felt like that was the most important thing, and and it is. Um, but we just had a different way of trying to address that. And so you're right. I think you get criticized sometimes for not prioritizing culture, and, and I think that's a misperception Um, we were prioritizing those things but the reality is um, that you need the resources to address those nobody has the luxury today of um, taking days out of their life for no income and um, so we knew that um, basket making for example was going to I mean that's an economic tool for basket makers and it's a tradition that we want to keep alive, and the reality is people need resources. So, um, so we were're coming from totally opposite views on how to enhance people, but I'm still a firm believer that if people um, you cannot put them in an unrealistic position in an unrealistic position to have to make choices about um, heating their homes. Getting the medicine they need, or um, feeding their children, or asking them to sit at the cultural center for a whole day and pass on a tradition that they know for no pay. So, um, so we needed to find a way to um, make sure that that folks didn't have to worry as much about that other aspect. You know, when we took office, we were facing a fifty-six percent unemployment rate. We were, um, we were, our education levels were getting much, much better. I mean, this year we have uh, close to 140 people in higher education, and for the past 20 years our tribe has done an outstanding job in that aspect. But um, we were facing deferred health care lists that were growing into the hundreds.
1: Now, what do you mean by that when you say deferred health care lists?
0: Well, Hopefully. you know, Indian Health Services and, and our clinic um, really operates on a... Um, you know, it's a budget-based, it's budget-based health care. So um, as all health care is, apparent, you know, obviously. But for our folks, you know, Indian Health Services is funded at per capita at about a third of a rate of a federal prisoner. So when you take $1,800 a year per tribal citizen that's allotted to them for health care, that can become extremely challenging. Now, obviously... Not every tribal citizen gets treated every year, for so it it amounts to us being able to meet the needs of our people. But at the same time, we saw a deferred health care list in 2006 that was approaching 300 people in a small community.
1: Those are are cases that you you can't handle because of the...
0: Budget, the, the restrict. budget restrictions. So basically the non-life-threatening things, bad knees, bad hips, yeah. uh, bad backs, those types of things. But what we knew was growing was this prescription drug issue that we see statewide. So we flew to Nashville and said, look to the IHS officials, we're in a situation right now where our healthcare li- deferred healthcare list is growing. We're doing everything we can to grow our economy, to address these things ourselves but you have a trust fiduciary responsibility to ensure the health of Indian people. And um, what's happening is we have prolonged pain management leading to addiction and um, in some cases, and we don't want our people living with this type of quality of life. So we fought that battle. We were able to argue that a lot of our indirect costs um, – thresholds and, and other funding mechanisms were not being met at, at the 100% they were supposed to. They saw the value in that. We were able to clean up that deferred health care list, and I think today we have about 6, six ten people on there mm-hmm. um, that don't stay on there for very long. So we, um, we were able to address that. So we, we tried to tie not only the um, economics and the, um, the economic piece of it, but also recognize that the health health of the community was extremely important. You know, we're facing three times the diabetes rate of the average Maine citizen. We heart disease and and cancer rates are extremely high uh, in the reservation. So we knew we were dealing with much less funding and much more in way of uh, disparities in health. Just by the fact that they were Indian people, and that's a national statistic that we're right in line with. So um, so we knew that um, the health care system was extremely important to keep funded at an adequate level, and of course recently the Supreme Court has ruled on the Rama case, which, um, which basically said that um, a lot of those contract costs were not met and, and tribes are getting settled with now so we continue to fight those battles and uh, I think they are all interconnected and they all lead to um, if you have a healthy community, if you have people making a living if you have people um, thriving within their own tribal nation, it's you know through the home ownership opportunities we're creating um, there's really, the goal is a sense of ownership, a sense of ability to thrive in within the community and also um, then turn and hopefully in some kind of unified way address uh, those, those issues of, of the Penobscot River, of the cultural department, of the um, youth, and everything that's extremely important to us as Native people to be able to, um, to move forward collectively without worrying about just meeting day-to-day quality-of-life issues.
1: Okay. Uh, you're listening to WERU, Abenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We're talking today with Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation, and we're talking a bit about uh, politics and um, how he sort of uh, addressed the process and, uh, and brought the nation forward in his time in office. So um, when you, in 2006, you, you envisioned an improvement in economics so in the economy. So how did you meet that that goal?
0: Well, what we did was um, we realized we didn't have a whole lot of resources. We realized there was no appetite due to... We, we did a lot of evaluation of our past um, businesses and why some of those failed. And we knew that there was no appetite to risk the precious resources the tribe had already to meet its service demands to... Um, to put into risky business ventures or any of those things. So we we had to focus on our tribal status. We had to focus on um, our unique tax setup, our, you know, the hub zone and all of the things that um, made our tribe attractive to do business with. So we had experience, as I mentioned, my father had a very successful um small business that was 8A certified and, and the 8A program is in the small business administration. And it's a, it's a a program that's set up for minorities to, um, access government contracts in a non-compete fashion over an eight year period to build your capability to compete for those jobs. Um, it's most visible in Alaska uh, with the Alaska native corporations. And, um, so we felt like that was the way we needed to go. We needed to utilize our status, get the 8A status, um, which was a very daunting process. We got the 8A status and, um, and started to move forward. In 2006, we were, um, we were looking to plug budget deficits. And so once we started the 8A process, um, we started to get some small... Um, contracts uh, humvee contract with main military authority we ended up um, small job at portsmouth naval shipyard and then as the 8a started to um, come to fruition we were ready to hit the ground running and um and today i'm proud to say that um, we have about 80 people working in our corporation in six states and we are um Working hard to, we just retrofitted our manufacturing facility. Um, we have forty thousand square feet of manufacturing facility that where we have two short term, uh, near term rather, um, opportunities to create um, dozens of jobs. And uh, so we're excited about that. That's the really the missing piece right now is the mass local jobs. Um, it's
1: that, that facility is located on the island. On correct? Indian Island, yes. yeah.
0: Okay, and. You know, so it's really hard to ask a tribal family, you know, to get up and move to Texas, for example. Um, And and some have. We have a few people there. We have a few people in Virginia. We've had multiple people in Portsmouth. And so, um, but the thing I'm really proud of is that it's entirely tribally led and that it's, um, and look, we've, it's not been easy. We've um, had some growing pains and we've learned some lessons, but we are... um, We are doing very well. We have a totally solvent corporation providing real sustainable revenue to our tribe. Um, And for the last three years, during one of the worst economic times in the country's history, um, we've experienced budget surpluses, program money surpluses. Um, We've implemented strategic planning and logic modeling around our budgeting process um, to justify everyone's existence and to show what is exactly being done. I think... In politics, we tend to live four years to four years because that's our lifespan as elected officials. The tribal mindset, as you know, is much, much bigger than that, and it's it's a generational success that we focus on. And And I really felt like um, we needed to... You know, there was a lot of impatience at first. It took us almost two and a half years to get set up. We really wanted to do it right. We wanted it to be there for a long time, and, um, and I think it will be. So... Um, so today we're employing more people than we ever have. We're operating 79 programs. We have about 150 employees on the government side. As I mentioned, another 80 or so on the corporate side. We're performing on, on 22 different Department of Defense contracts right now, um, much more in the pipeline, and um, getting that manufacturing facility going is now the priority Uh, start making things and and putting people in good government jobs and um, and focusing on uh, a better quality of life for our tribe and for our nation we've seen property values increasing through the 106 program and other things we can do now to allow tribal people to sell their homes and also participate in uh, traditional financing to buy their own home on the reservation so we're getting away from a public housing model and more of a um, that'll always be needed to some extent, but we also um, are moving more towards home ownership and more buying in the community. And I think you know that's starting to take shape. Like anything with change, you know, it can be painful at times. And I think um, when you're developing and you're moving at such a quick pace, I think um, we need to be conscious of having to uh, take a look around and have some conversations once in a while and. I would say that's been maybe our weakness a little bit,
1: mm, too. Too focused on getting the job done, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, now the housing piece. I you know I it surprised me a bit when when uh, I looked at this and and realized that you know tribal people we have been without the regular normal everyday economic tools that everyone else has. Whereas you know if you don't live. On the uh, in the tribal communities, you know, you can buy a house and sell a house, no problem. Mm-hmm. But if you live within the tribal communities, uh, usually you can't, and there's no bank that's going to uh, lend you uh, uh, money, you know, to buy a house. Uh, how did that? How did that uh, get get addressed? I mean, it, it's been was many many years that tribal people were, were without that economic
0: tool. Yep. through So tribes nationally challenged by this. And so this has been on the front burner for a lot of tribes for a lot of years and for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, you're right. The challenge is that the bank can't count on the collateral because they cannot repossess anything on the reservation. All the land, as you know, are release deeds that are held in common by the tribe so there's a lot of challenges in traditional financing of someone's own home or trying to build a home and so the 106 program through HUD and through uh, USDA really created a situation of um, an ability to back those loans so that um, basically what the tribal council does is they they um, sign the lease and uh, the deed gets held until the payments are made on the in the, in the and we haven't had one um, yet but in the unfortunate uh, situation of a foreclosure or a um, or a bank take back or whatever it may be um, that wouldn't go anywhere it would go right back to the tribe and the tribe would assume either by uh, placing new rental uh, folks in there or but they would the tribe would always maintain control of whatever property is built or sold um, within the tribe, but it's the banks get their guarantee that um, that they'll get paid if if there's a problem so um, so that 's been an invaluable. We did thirteen units uh brand new energy all platinum lead certified um, and when we built them, you know there was a lot of skepticism. I think it was you know a tug of war for a while people were um saying you know you'll never sell those you'll you know nobody's gonna buy those and and we found we had a waiting list for those and
1: what year was that
0: that was 2008 2009 i think 2008 2009 and um and we um and we sold everyone and all to tribal citizens all now have homeowners ownership status in the community and um doing very very well those people in those units seem extremely happy and um and again i think the sense of being able to do as you mentioned what every other american is able to do and um invest in their own community and have a um and have a uh a product at the end of the day that they can pass down to their children that they can you know so as you know we're very limited on space so that that is um yeah,
1: and that 's uh, my next question,
0: yeah
1: <laughs> so, so where are we going next?
0: well, wise, um, we have some thoughts we've um, you know, about two years ago or so, and this has been addressed over a couple of administrations, trying to figure out kind of where the tribe is going to expand to. We continue to have waiting lists for housing opportunities. Despite a 34% growth in housing, we, we continue to have people unemployed at a, despite reducing that by 20%, we're still in the 30 percentile range of unemployment. Um, we're, um, so we, we still have to figure out um, what we're going to do to allow people to come home. And I talked about how we're trying to address the jobs, the housing stuff. We have um, 800 acres of reservation land in Argyle Township. Um, that's about six miles or so from the from the reservation uh, from the community right now. So um, we're looking at and have um, some development plans for that site, um, and also the discussion always comes up about do we move up to the next island and start to develop that. Um, that's a little more politically contentious. Um, people are extremely protective of those islands and and um and very much uh, against development of of these hunting grounds and in, in traditional areas that we have very few of today. So I think Argyle is going to be more palatable. The challenge with Argyle and with any extended community is the infrastructure that needs to go with it you know the the police the fire the um, snow plowing the you know the lawn mowing program for the elders the senior meal deliveries all of those types of things um need to be sorted out so yeah,
1: but that's the, the thought what about old lemon that was mentioned mm. is that still a
0: well old lemon as you know um Traditionally, it was very much occupied. Um, and if you go on that island today, you can still see the cellar holes and the, from where people live there. Um, we have not had a serious discussion about that. I think um, we just haven't. I, I I don't know why, but yes, um, O Lemon Island is very handy to the mainland and, and could be a possibility. Uh, again, no, I think we'll get into a lot of... Um, Protections of those islands, and and not wanting development there.
1: Interesting. <coughs> so, you're where you've come. You you started in 2006. Mm-hmm. It's been six years, and you have um, been successful in getting the uh, getting the nation out of out of debt, mm-hmm. so to speak, and and you brought positions in and, and created jobs and um so what what are you going to do now
0: rest I, <laughs> no, I don't i doubt it but i i um we have a lot of places we can go we feel like we have um really put the foundation in place to be hugely successful and uh, one of the biggest things as well not just the the economics and the um the housing and the health care and all of the things that um, are extremely important. But what what also is important is our governmental capability, our ability to manage ourselves, be what we say we are. And I think that the um, when we talk about regulating our territory, we better be able to do that. And when we talk about um, um, reaching out and and making sure that the river is protected, we better be able to do that. And so we um, are very serious about our governmental status as well and i think what we've always tried to do is represent the government with dignity uh, make sure that we're being diplomatic when we uh, when it's appropriate and that we're taking a hard line when we have to and i think that um, we've done that so i think moving forward um, we now have the luxury of fine-tuning a lot of things youth programs um, we, we just created our first uh, teen center to focus on that demographic, focusing on prescription drug tax forces and trying to get ahead of that problem, that scourge in Maine. And um, our community is no different. We need um, to stay ahead of these things to be able to um, ensure our success in the future, building our um, our natural resource capabilities as well in an already huge department Um more conservation officers, fisheries people, um, you know, we have uh, a lot to do. Uh, so we, there'll never be um, an end to it, I don't think. And I think our focus is going to be um, on fine tuning and over the next two years and also building off those early successes and making sure. And I will say that um, I kind of, timing is kind of everything and sometimes you, um, you get a little bit lucky, and I'm I'm just extremely fortunate to have some very very smart people, and I think some people that came to the table that wanted to help. So I um I can't say enough about you know the institutional knowledge we have. You know we have as you know being in in, in leadership we have our our debates and we have our our um, conversations on direction, and not every day goes perfectly, but we. Um, but we just have some outstanding folks that nationally are leading the way in a lot of areas in tribal, uh, in the tribal arena. When you think about um, people that are leading the budget discussions for how Indian country gets funded, how we're leading national organizations um, in many areas, addressing tribal rights and historic sites and Indian child welfare is a huge thing. So... um, you know, in in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that that just got formed. And we're doing a lot of really, really good work. And I think that the tribes of Maine in general are just littered with extraordinarily talented people that have had to, quite frankly, for generations, operate um, very creatively um, due to lack of funds, opportunity, um, coming out of boarding schools and, and termination era policies and, So I really feel like, um, when I look at our government, that it's, it's poised to continue to grow. It's poised to continue to be, um, the sovereign nation that it is and can do that with a straight face because it's, it's handling every aspect of tribal life right now through our court systems, through our family services, through public safety, um, natural resources, our own public works, housing. So we're, um, we're a fully functioning sovereign government that can meet the needs of our citizens, and, and that's what our focus will be, continuing to enhance on that, get those local jobs uh, in place, and also um, continue to build the governmental status in terms of tribal permitting, uh, a lot of different things that we need to um, tighten up over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, and, the, and what's always been a challenge to, to probably you know, your administration and past is uh, jurisdictional mm-hmm. and working with the governor and with mm-hmm. the attorney general's office and the legislature. Um, and now in 2010, when you were last here, th- you, know, you were very optimistic about being able to uh, partner and, and work mm-hmm. with the state. Uh, what does that look like now?
0: Well, you know, we went from... 2007 to having no relationship and basically um, kind of separated ourselves from any state discussion Um, we you know we don't rely on the state for resources I mean in terms of um, our funding none of that comes from the state Uh, so this is really about a sovereign to sovereign relationship about being neighbors and stakeholders and understanding that what each other does can affect each other. The problem is, is the mechanisms to resolve those things. And I think, um, you know, when I, where I see the relationship at, I've always felt and continue to feel like, um, this relationship is benefits only go one way. And I think that the decision making is only on one side and a lot of times while you may have a seat at the table you really have no ability to um, affect policy affect change um, and it doesn't mean we don't keep trying i just think that um, i just think that it's such a, it's a relationship that's seated in such distrust and such historical problems that it's so many historical problems that um, it's difficult. And I think it's going to take, on both sides, strong, strong leadership to say enough is enough. And you can't just say it. You know, we, we can't just have great consultation policies and we can't just have um, kind of these proclamations about tribal sovereignty. We just can't. And I, I realize that, that um, there are good people in Augusta. There are many, many good people there. And I've had many good conversations with a lot of people the problem comes when there is any relinquishment of a state position, any relinquishment of a tribal position so I I think if you look at the history objectively if you look at it when we were wards of the state to when we were supposed to be forever free of state of interference and that was in 1980 um, that you'll see a, a clear record of, of the tribes really not being able to um, invoke meaningful change. Matter of fact, in many instances, being blocked from opportunities. You know, gaming is always the, the, big, uh, the big elephant in the room. But yet, we have a casino six miles from our reservation. So what message does that send to, to tribal people that it's not good enough for you in your sovereign governmental status doesn't have the ability to make that decision. Um, but it's an acceptable business practice for us while we gain millions and millions of dollars to help support our governmental services. So um, in the meantime, by the way, crushing a 30-year-old high-stakes bingo operation that we've had and also slot machines we had, that were taking away in 1979 and never given back to us. So um, that's one example, and it's a and the tribe has made no decision recently to even, um, you know, get involved in casinos or whatever. And i have just raised that as an example that um, that's one glaring area where it's an acceptable business practice right down the street. But for some reason, the tribe doesn't have the ability to legislate that for themselves. And then you have um, on and on and on, you know, this whole issue of of whether federal beneficial acts apply in Maine or not. So when, you know, Congress has plenary power over over Indian tribes, and when you have things like the Native American Graves Protection Act being challenged because tribes are simply trying to repatriate their ancestors to bury them properly— uh, to take care of them properly, to educate their own people properly <coughs> um, there 's something wrong when clean air and clean water acts don 't apply in your in your territory there 's something wrong when tribal law and order is is act is passed, and you have um, clear statistics that show the violent disparities the violence disparities within Indian communities the drug-targeting disparities within Indian communities, um, Violence Against Women Act, when you have clear... One thing Indian women can count on, one in every three of them will be assaulted at some point in their life. And that is over and above, by far, the national average. And and predominantly by non-tribal citizens, by the way. So now you have a situation of non-tribal citizens being prosecuted and dealt with in a state court system, the tribal person, the victim, going through the um, tribal process. We have no ability to comprehensively heal that family. For better or for worse, a large percentage of people end up back together. And we end up with that offender back in our community with no ability to deal with them. So this act was passed to address those very things um, and but yet the state will contend well that doesn't really apply to you um, we 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 signed the settlement act and and um, you know your court can't lift its jurisdiction to $5,000 or know, $15,000 three years in prison from five thousand one year and you can't um, you know you can't have jurisdiction over non-members even though they live in our community. You go to New Hampshire; I'm pretty sure New Hampshire police has authority over you. You come to a sovereign Indian reservation, and it should be the same way. So, this whole idea that everything's the big payback is um, is just absurd. You know, I think when you hear um, people in in the in state government in in other places say, you know, that tribal courts are inherently um, corrupt or filled with unfairness uh, it's just it's just absurd. So I think back to the question the relationship is still very much um is still very challenging and it's um it's one that um we have to continuously educate, you know, the insti- as you know being in the legislature the institutional knowledge comes and goes. Um there are term limits, there are um you know, governors come and go. But one thing that stays the same is the career policymakers and through the attorney general's office and other places. And, and they've been through all the battles. And, um, and there's just no, you know, we always thought that we could make change through policy by sitting down and say, and we've tried this on several occasions, okay, you don't agree that we have total regulatory authority on our trust lands for large development, Let's sit down, we'll work out a memorandum of understanding, we'll um, do our tribal permitting process, we'll work with you side by side, and at the end of the day, you know, the tribal interest is protected. Sovereigns do MOUs all the time, and that's a sovereign act. And But, you know, those MOUs end up in the Attorney General's office, then the and comes back, well, that's great, we'll move side by side, but at the end of the day, this is going to be a state authority. So it's challenging, and, and the decision-making inability on the tribal side um, kind of makes it a mockery at times.
1: Right, and, and at the end of the day, when you mm-hmm. do sit down and try to discuss these things, the what seat is empty? It's the Attorney General's seat. Mm-hmm.
0: It so is. what and
1: kind of message does that send? Uh, and the other thing is, I think at one point it, we, we thought we could reestablish trust. Well, you know, you can't reestablish because there never was trust. Mm-hmm. We have to establish trust. Uh, And the other thing I wanted to note was that I, I may be wrong about this, but in every inauguration ceremony that I've attended, there has never been a governor of the state of Maine attend an inauguration ceremony. I've never seen it.
0: I've never seen it either.
1: So that would be probably a good thing for them to consider to do for good faith. Uh, at our next ceremony is to uh, have a governor attend.
0: I think that would be extremely important because one of the things they got, you know, that state officials have to understand is we take an oath and responsibility to do things a certain way and to do things for people. And so just like they have their constitution, um, we have to live by things. And we... And when those things get contentious, that has to be respected. So the trust issue really has to be based in a lot of things. It has to be based in real action. Like, you know, maybe you're right, maybe we're right, but we're going to take your side on this, and you guys go ahead and and do what it is that we're talking about because um, we don't really know. It hasn't been the court. We think we're right, but maybe you are as well. Just some give and take once in a while and not just take, I think would be the the answer to and and you know, as Penobscots always have, we'll we'll stand ready to extend our hand when that um, when people um, enter into that type of arrangement with good faith and and um, we we know we won't always get it our way, but at the end of the day there has to be some common ground found.
1: Right. And I agree and I and, and you know, I think extending our hand, I think our hands get Kind of tired out there, you know. <laughs> uh, so, with with that uh, last comment, we'll we'll uh, end, end the show. And uh, thank you, uh, Chief Francis, for joining us. Uh, and uh, I'm your host, Anna Loring, and you've been listening to Webinaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called "Little Eagles" from his CD Dreamwalk. Uh, and uh, I'd like to thank the uh, engineer, uh, Amy Brown. And uh, tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.